please grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. I grew up with four sisters. Yeah, only guy. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what's wrong with me. No. Um, I got two older sisters, and then there's me in the middle. And then my parents, they wanted one more kid. And God gave them twins. So bless their hearts. Um, but anybody else come from a big family? Yeah, I know about you guys down here. No, but yeah, a lot of people, it, it's great coming from a big family. Uh, one of the best parts about having a big family is sharing the load of housework. Do y'all do that to Allen House? Yeah. Uh, my parents kind of instilled this in me and my sisters. They said, hey, you're a part of this family. There are certain responsibilities that you're going to have. And it was not optional. So we each had jobs. We had assignments. We had household tasks we had to do. One of mine was taking out the garbage to the street each week. But my biggest task was probably uh, mowing the lawn. My dad, he, he hated, still to this day, loathes yard work. So as soon as I could safely push a mower, that was my job. Now, I may have only been about four years old, but I did my best. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I was a teenager. But, you know, it's funny. Where I, my, my wife and I grew up in small town Tennessee, most people were not overly concerned with the state of their lawn. Like, you mowed your grass occasionally, and that was it. And now that I've lived in Johnson County for about a year and a half, one of the things I've, I've noticed is people here on the whole seem to care a little bit more about their grass. I, uh, I go to some people's houses, and I'm, like, scared to walk on it. <laughs> like, it's so nice. So I've been trying to up my game. Like, I've been trying to learn about lawn care. Uh, like, my parents taught me, I think you know, it's my responsibility to care for what God's given me. So I'm learning about something called weed and feed. You know what that is? You guys know what that is? Yeah, I, I'm learning about all the things. I went to a place called Grass Pad, which is like the mecca of, of lawn care. And uh, I went in there, and the guy asked me, he said, he said, okay, so what kind of grass do you have? I thought, the green kind. <laughs> I didn't know there were a lot of kinds, but apparently there were a lot of kinds that I'm learning. And just as my parents taught me, I want to instill that same mindset in my daughter. She's three years old, but we're trying to teach her how to pull weeds. My wife is mainly helping her with that. And she uh, does pull up a few flowers, but she's doing pretty good pulling up the weeds. And, and I just think it's important that she contributes to the family as she can. Because being a part of the family comes with certain privileges and it comes with certain responsibilities. Think, think with me about that word. Let's say it together. Say that word, responsibility. Yeah, now there's two kinds of people in this room. Some of you said, oh, I love that word, mm, responsibility. Then there's the others of you that said, oh, responsibility. You know, that's how we think, especially when we're young. It's not a popular word, but when you're a part of something, there are responsibilities that come with that, whether that's a family or a business or a community. I mean, think about this, though. If we're responsible for the state of our home and even our lawns, then what does that mean for our church? I mean, if being a part of your workplace and your neighborhood comes with certain responsibilities, then what about being a part of the church? The Bible says the church is the family of God. It's a body of people joined together. So this morning, I want to show you what happens when a church loses sight of its responsibilities and how we can make sure we fulfill our kingdom responsibilities. If you've been with us on Sunday morning, you know we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. That's the final book of the Bible, and it is one of the most fascinating, challenging, and at times just flat-out confusing books in all of the Bible. And one of the reasons Revelation is so fascinating is because it's actually a vision 
given to the Apostle John as he lived in exile on an island called Patmos. And the letter opens with seven letters to seven churches just like ours. And as we've seen, there are some cultural differences going on. But at the end of the day, we have a lot in common with these seven churches. These churches are living in places where the culture and environment around them are hostile to the things of God. There's pagan worship taking place all around them. And there's a temptation to totally freak out, to give up, and to even walk away from the faith. But Jesus speaks into that situation, and he gives us a revelation. It's a complicated revelation, but it's one actually with a very simple point I shared with you last week. Fear not, Jesus is on his throne. That is the central message and purpose of the book of Revelation. And that's the lens we're going to look each week at the text with. So today we come to the fourth letter, to the fourth church. It's the church of Thyatira. Or as, you know, a preacher in the south might say, Thyatira. Uh, But I won't do that. Our passage is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word together? Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You can be seated. Thyatira, we know, was a city with a bustling economy which revolved around these various trade guilds. These these guilds were organized and they were very influential in the culture. So depending on what industry you belonged to, you were expected to be a part of that trade guild. But this posed a unique problem for followers of Jesus because these trade guilds were also connected to the pagan worship of the day. They they would often feature pagan ceremonies and and feasts to other gods because they believed that the success of their industry was dependent on the favor of the gods. So so you can imagine the difficulty that it would be to be, say, a Christian coppersmith. Your livelihood, your ability to thrive and support your family was dependent on your copper business. And as a coppersmith, you were expected to be a part of the copper trade guild. And the guild viewed you as having certain responsibilities. So the thought was, hey, if you're going to be in the copper business and you're going to be in this guild, you're expected to worship this particular God. You're expected to contribute to this. So now all of a sudden as a Christian, this is a major problem. You have a responsibility to provide for your family. You have a responsibility to be in the trade guild. 
but you just swore allegiance to Jesus. So what do you do? Well, some of them faced persecution. Some faced intense pressure to conform to the culture, and some simply gave in. This is what was happening in the church in Thyatira. Specifically, there was a false teacher, a woman that Jesus calls Jezebel. Now, her name was probably not really Jezebel, but what Jesus is doing is comparing her and identifying her with the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And let me tell you, if there is one person that a lady does not want to be compared to, it's Jezebel. I mean, she is one of the most notorious villains of the Old Testament. She was a Phoenician princess who married King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time. And she and her husband led the people of God to worship other gods. She did a lot of other bad stuff. She tried to kill Elijah. She killed some other people. And ultimately, as God's judgment against her, true story, she's thrown out a window, run over by a horse, and eaten by dogs. So again, <laughs> if there is one person you don't want to be compared to, it's Jezebel. So Jesus is not saying this lightly when he says, you have a serious problem in your church, and you have a kingdom responsibility to do something about it. Let me show you this morning three responsibilities that Jesus called these believers to fulfill and how they're the same responsibilities we have as a church today. Here's the first. We have a responsibility to stand guard. At the beginning of the passage, we see that the church in Thyatira was doing some great things. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So, so these believers had some good things going for them. They were actually improving in their works. They probably felt pretty good about themselves. But there was a problem under the surface. There was something they were sweeping under the rug. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That word tolerate can also mean to, to leave alone or to forgive. So he's not saying that they loved her or supported her or defended her. They simply allowed this to go on. They looked the other way and tolerated it. There are a few popular quotes of our day that say things like, you get what you tolerate. Or what you put up with is what you end up with. I think this is true when it comes to sin. Man, we, we cannot tolerate sin in our lives. We, we can't simply look the other way. We have to be active with our holiness. John Piper is famous for saying we must declare war on our sin. See, we're in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of the evil one. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are square in the middle of a spiritual battle. So let me ask you, is there anything sinful in your life that you're simply tolerating? You're not celebrating it. You're not proud of it, but you allow it to hang around. Could it be that what's keeping you from growing in your faith, from experiencing the fullness of joy in the Lord, could it be that it's something you're tolerating? We have a personal responsibility as followers of Jesus to live like Jesus and to put to death sin. But this responsibility isn't just personal. It's also a responsibility for the church. Remember, Jesus is writing here to the church. And this is something I think we misunderstand. We, we live in this hyper-individualized culture where we're taught to focus on ourselves and take care of you and yours first, right? But when we become a part of a local church, it's no longer about me. 
But now our spiritual lives, it's about we. We are committing ourselves to the body, and the body commits herself to us. And this is what membership is all about. Church membership might be one of the most misunderstood things in the Christian life today. A lot of people view church membership like being a member of the library. You, you go, in a, and I'm talking about the local library, not our amazing church library. You know. um, but a lot of people think of the library, you, you go whenever you want, you check out whatever you want, and you do your best to avoid the fines. But being a member of a church is a serious commitment. Like We don't always do a good job of making this clear, but joining a church is less like joining a club, and it's more like getting married. You are agreeing to become a part of a church family, and you're agreeing to certain responsibilities. Things like showing up, being faithful, worshiping. Things like giving financially, giving of your time and service, following the leadership of the church, being a good testimony in our community. So as a member of a local church, it's not just about your spiritual health. It's not just guarding yourself from sin and attacks, but you have an obligation to everyone else too. Like, like we have a responsibility to one another. We're brothers and sisters in the family of God. Uh, growing up with four sisters, I felt a certain level of responsibility for my sisters, especially my, my little sisters. My two older sisters are now married, but my youngest sisters aren't. They're 23 years old, and still to this day, if a guy is pursuing them, I will be sure to vet him thoroughly. Background checks, all that. No. Um, but they, they'll call me and they'll say, Micah, he's a good guy. Listen, every guy is a good guy when he likes a good girl. I, just, I don't believe that. But, you know, since we're family, I feel responsible for helping them and protecting them when I can. See, the same should be true of the church. As brothers and sisters in the family of God, we're in this together. So are you standing guard for your church? I'm not saying you need to go around and be the Christian police and shame everyone who's not as holy as you or smart as you or doesn't believe everything exactly like you do. I'm saying, are you looking out for your church? Are you praying for your church? Are you seeking to build unity and not division in your church? We have to stand guard for one another because the cost is great. Look at this in verse 22. This is what Jesus says to those who seek to divide the church. He says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is another one of those pictures of Jesus we typically don't think about. It's kind of intense. But what Jesus is doing is he's protecting his church. Like the good shepherd, he protects his flock. And what that means for us is that we don't guard the church alone. We have the Son of God with us who says he has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's guarding us. He said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So that's our first responsibility is to stand guard. Here's the second. It's to stand firm. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So despite the influence of Jezebel, there were still some people in the church who were faithful. 
And to the faithful, Jesus simply says, hey, I'm not giving you any other burden. All you need to do is hang on to what you have. What do they have to hang on to? Well, Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truth and the word of God. And he's calling them to stand firm on that truth and to hang on to it for dear life. Friends, this is so important for us today. We are in the midst of unprecedented information overload. Like, I really do not believe God intended for our brains to experience the amount of information that technology delivers every day. The news cycle runs 24 hours and everything's breaking news. It's instant, never changing, it's outrageous, and it's designed really to do one thing, to keep you angry so you keep watching. And then there's social media. Have you ever noticed how you can never scroll to the bottom? Like there's always more to see. And there are people who sit in Silicon Valley for a living, designing things to keep us addicted to our phones. So there's this endless stream of information hitting our brains. And I'm not saying the news is evil or social media is the devil. I'm on there. But I'm saying that if we're not balancing that information overload with a steady intake of the word of God, then we're in trouble. Guys, there, there is nothing like this book. There's no replacement for this. Let me tell you some things I learned about this book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Bible is God-breathed and equips us for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Isaiah 48 says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Psalm 119.105 says it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Isaiah 55.11 says it doesn't return void, but it will accomplish the purposes of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man cannot live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Psalm 19.7 says God's word is perfect. It revives the soul. And Psalm 19.10 says it's better than gold or riches and sweeter than honey. Man, I could keep going and going, but the point here, guys, listen, there is nothing like this book. Because this is more than a book. This is truth. This is the very words of God. And, and, and we must stand firm on this book now more than ever. Do you know this book? Are you actively seeking to read it, study it, memorize it? And it's not a textbook. It's not made to just be studied and memorized. But are you actively seeking to live it out? We have a responsibility to stand firm on the truth. And it seems like truth is at an all-time low right now. Due to the information overload, a lot of the information we get is twisted and distorted. It's designed to scare us or anger us or convince us to accept a particular worldview. Again, this is why we need to know the Word of God. Because God's Word is truth and it's the standard by which we measure everything else. Uh, recently, I went to the eye doctor for the very first time. I've never had glasses, but I thought, you know, I'm getting older and I need to get it checked out. And um, I sat down in the chair and, man, the doctor, she started putting all these gizmos and gadgets in front of my face, you know, like they do. They keep asking me questions. What do you see there? What do you see there? You see that little puppy in the street? I'm like, I don't see nothing. You see the colors and the letters. I had to say all these things. But what they were doing is they were checking to see where my vision didn't match up to the standard. What's the standard of good eye vision? 2020, right? That's what they say. 
And they use that standard to correct any problems that your eyes may have, whether you're nearsighted or farsighted or whatever it is. The goal is to conform you to the standard. See, that's the way the Bible works. When we take in the word of God, it goes down deep into our souls and it begins to find the places where we do not conform to the truth and it begins to change us. So it's our responsibility to hold fast to the word. It's not optional. Are you standing firm on the word? Here's the third and last responsibility and we'll be done. We must stand ready. Look at verse 26. Jesus closes with a promise. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. One of the things we're going to see as we walk through the book of Revelation is that we often have a limited view of heaven. In fact, the common popular view of heaven is is pretty boring. Like floating on clouds and playing harps forever. Who Who wants to do that? But eternal life is not going to be passive. We aren't going to be sitting around doing nothing. There's going to be a lot of things going on, as we're going to see as we go through this book. And Jesus tells us here that those who persevere with him until the end will be given authority over the nations. Jesus said in Matthew 19, he told his disciples that they were actually going to sit and rule with him on thrones. Paul told the Corinthian church that believers will judge angels. And later in Revelation, we're going to see more about this. But but the idea is that we're going to have some level of responsibility in eternity. In fact, what we do here in the church is a foreshadowing of what's to come in heaven. And then Jesus says he will give us the morning star. This reference is a little vague. There's a lot of opinions about what that means. But we know later in Revelation, Jesus actually calls himself the morning star. So this confirms the idea that we're going to be united to Christ in such a way that we are going to have authority over all of creation as the morning star. It's so much bigger than we understand. So the question is, are you ready? I played one year of baseball. That's all I could do. I was, I was terrible. One year. And it turns out the point of the game is to hit the ball. I had no idea. I just couldn't do it. And so when I stepped up to the plate to bat, everybody started yelling at me. You know how they do with these little league games. They're all yelling, get ready, here it comes. And the one thing they say over and over, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball, Micah. And I was taught to position myself in such a way, like to stand in such a way and bend my knees just right, hold my hands just right. You see how terrible. That's why I was not good. But um, I, I was supposed to be ready. So when the pitch came, I could swing and make contact. Here's my point. Are you living your life in such a way that you stand ready for eternity? Or have you become too comfortable, too complacent in this life? Have you taken your eyes off the ball and missed the point of what really matters? This is what standing guard and standing firm and standing ready is all about. It's a mindset. It's a stance. It's living in such a way that you understand eternity is coming. Jesus will return, and we will stand in judgment. It's understanding that all of this stuff we get distracted by, all of these things that upset us and worry us, this stuff is temporary, man. But what we do for Jesus lasts forever. 
So let me ask you again. Are you ready? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and the idea of dying and going into eternity is just terrifying to you. Maybe you're not sure whether you'd spend eternity in heaven or hell. Maybe this whole idea of a relationship with Jesus is new. Or maybe you just you grew up calling yourself a Christian because that's, you know, the way your family was. But you never really surrendered your life to him. There is one way for you to be ready for eternity. It's not cleaning up your life. It's not being a good person. It's not trying to do all the right things. It's simple. It's surrendering your life to Jesus. See, even though we are sinners who deserve God's judgment, Jesus died in our place, taking our sin, rising from the dead, so that we could have eternal life in him. And he said that if you will just call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved and you will be ready. Maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, but like some in the church in Thyatira, you've wandered away. You've gotten pulled away by the world's temptations and you realize today you're not living ready. You aren't standing guard or standing firm. You're barely standing at all. I feel like that some days. God's grace is for you too. In fact, if you're here breathing today, that means it's not too late to turn around and refocus your life on Jesus and honestly, that's something all of us need today. I mean, after the things we've experienced this year and the things that we know are still to come, what we need now more than ever is a renewed focus on Jesus. We need to stand guard, protecting our hearts from any kind of idolatry or sin that might pull us away from the Lord, protecting our church from anything that might distract us or create division amongst the body and keep us from our mission. We need to stand firm daily, digging into the scriptures and realigning our minds with God's word and clinging to this truth as we go to work and as we go to school and as we do all that we do so when the lies of the enemy come, we have the truth. And we need to stand ready, understanding that Jesus could return at any time, that life could end for any one of us and we will stand before the Lord and all these things we care about here will be gone and only one thing will matter. And that will be Jesus Christ. These are our kingdom responsibilities. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.